What makes a great product? Is it the hand-finished glaze on a vase? The artistry of the label on a drinks bottle? Is it the knowledge that it came from a heritage brand with the best skills in the business? Or that it was made sustainably within one country? We appreciate the items that we know have had the hands of a great craftsman or woman on them more than those that came off a factory conveyor belt. And after a period of fast fashion and mass production, it seems the customer is even more aware of where and how their things are created. This is Made in France, a celebration of the rich tradition of French craftsmanship and innovation in manufacturing. This is a country full of ateliers, workshops and schools creating at such a high level that designers from around the world seek out their expertise. Each week we'll be travelling across France to speak to designers, chefs, winemakers, teachers, milliners, ceramicists and plenty more who are making beautifully crafted items. I'm your host, Gillian Tobias. On today's episode, we're investigating the world of food, drink and agriculture. France is famed for its vineyards, boulangerie and top produce that are sold around the world. The most synonymous item with made in France within the realm of food and drink is champagne. There are plenty of big brands in the business, but one that has remained within its original family is Tétanger, or for many, Tattinger. Since the 1700s, the Champagne House has been making its own brand of the fizzy stuff based around a high percentage of Chardonnay. Housed in Reims, the company makes one of the most popular champagnes in France by aging its tipple in a maze of 4th century UNESCO-listed cellars underneath the city. The company's artistic director is Vitaly Titanger, and she tells Monocle's Sophie Grove about keeping champagne in the family and about running such an illustrious French brand. Vitaly, it's wonderful to be here in the Tétanger headquarters in France, or Reims, as we say in England. Could I ask you a little bit about yourself? What was it like growing up in a champagne house? When did you have your first goot of the fizzy stuff? And can you tell me about your early memories? So when I was a child, I grew up not in the champagne company. My, uh, my father uh, was working in... But we were a little bit separate uh, in uh, our life. was more about the family life, but not necessarily uh, champagne. The only thing I remember about champagne, when my father and my mother had some guests, they organized many dinners and everything. Before the dinners, they were drinking some champagne, of course. And after the aperitif, I was coming into uh, the living room and just had the last sip <laughs> of every glasses. So what I remember is more about uh, hot champagne with lipstick. <laughs> My first taste. <laughs> the dregs, as we say. Can I ask you about how you think champagne, the industry, is changing? Because it seems to me it's this very traditional sector of, of food and drink, but it is changing. I mean, more women are becoming part of the industry, and you're a very good example of that. How do you think it's changed since you've been at the helm of Tetanger for the last decade? I think that champagne has changed also because uh, maybe 10 or 12 years ago, I think we were more speaking about champagne when we were speaking about sparkling wine. 
And now, more and more, some other sparkling wine are coming, and some of them are taking a little bit, uh, not the place, but uh, a piece of the image of champagne. So for champagne, it's very good because it's also uh, the way to to tell that it's time to move and it's time to um, tell even more what we are. And it's not a question of tradition or not. I think it's just a question of how we can uh, express this appellation in a contemporary way, keeping the thing which is the most important for the appellation, the thing which is the extraordinary side of Champagne. I think Champagne has always to be extraordinary, because uh, if it's not, we will become like all the other appellations, and I think we have to stay distinct. I mean, it's interesting with champagne, more than any other drink, it's very emotional. It's synonymous with celebration and joy in some ways. And I really feel that in your brand, you, you sort of have a way of translating some of those slightly less obvious kind of, I don't know, emotional elements that in your product. How do you work at that as an artistic director? I try to find, uh, first of all, the people, they understand very well uh, the identity of, of the brand. And of course, this identity is really linked to the family spirit, because uh, this is one of the biggest difference when you are a family company. It's uh, something which is very human. We are, by definition, very different. Our aim is just every day to reach what we are, to capture that. And so uh, I try to find the right people to translate this spirit. When I have one, I keep him for a long time because uh, it's very hard to change. Uh, I think the best way to create emotion is to work on it for several years. And when you are working with the same people, they know what you have in your mind and they are doing what you want at once. What do you think your, your image really means in the international context? And how do you think that differs in France from a Parisian or, or even a local perspective? I think in France we have an image which is... Um, maybe even more prison because uh, it's our country and uh, the work and the relationship we are creating with the journalists, with the people, just the customers, are easier to maintain daily. So uh, in France, this is something which is very lively and it's not just a reputation, it's not just the brand. This is also uh, based on a physical experience with people. In UK or in America, the strength of uh, the company is really uh, in the name and in the reputation of the brand, of the product. And uh, I think that the work we have done uh, since the beginning of the adventure of Tétanger is of course at the base of the success of the name the quality of the champagne is our best ambassador. <laughs> when we are not somewhere, I think when uh, the project is and is telling about us, is uh, speaking for us and what we are doing here in Reims is expressing it everywhere in, in the world. So I think the project is our best ambassador. And I know you've, um, well, your father has fought very hard to 
bring the company back into family mm-hmm. ownership, which must be incredibly important for you. I wonder how passion really for the terroir, as you mentioned, but also the idea of having a family business influences your, your work here. Of course. For me, uh, just the word family is the most important for this brand. I think to be a family is not just a word. And uh, I know that for the wines, it's kind of common to be family. uh, But in Champagne, it's more and more rare. And uh, it means a lot of very uh, serious decision about the wine. It means that uh, we are just projecting ourselves in the future. It's not just three years, four years. We want to be there in 20 years and 30 years and even more. And uh, when you are working for the future, you are just installing the quality. You want to build the value of the brand on the long-term way. It changes everything. Even to be a family, it means also that we are in family also with the people they are working at Etanger. So uh, everybody here is coming uh, in the morning with uh, the joy, <laughs> you know, the passion. Everybody here wants to push the brand, is proud of the brand. So it changes also the way they work every day. Another thing uh, about the way we cultivate, you know, we have... A, the second biggest vineyard in Champagne, 288 hectares. And um, the way we cultivate is also linked to the fact that we are a family, because when you are a family, you want to take care about the people and you want to pay attention to the way you, you will do in your vineyard. You don't want to put some things they are not good for the health. You are just looking your your terroir with more passion like a baby. So uh, it's key, the fact, to be a family. And finally, I wanted to ask you, for those who've never been lucky enough to taste Tatanger <laughs> or Tetanger, what is the, um, the kind of signature quality of your champagne? I think that uh, the signature and the tone of the house is definitely uh, linked to the Chardonnay, which is a cépage uh, very clear, very elegant, very light, and very precise. And uh, I think that uh, in every single bottle of Tetanger, you have this signature of a wine which is very precise, full of light, and delicate. This is a wine which is always very elegant. One more time, elegant is a word that everybody uses. But when you will have a glass of Tétanger in your hand and when you will have your first uh, sip of champagne, you will understand what I tell. Precise and light. We couldn't talk about French produce without sampling some delicious baked goods. Christophe Vasseur is a Parisian baker whose boulangerie, Dupin et des Idées, sits in a 19th century bakery in the 10th arrondissement. You'll notice it immediately by the queue that forms outside its doors each day. And what these people are queuing for is the brilliant craft of bread and pastry making. Vasseur turned his back on a career in fashion to become a baker at the age of 30. And he was adamant that he wanted to become the best. 
Using traditional methods, he's become an award-winning connoisseur of bread since he opened his doors in 2002, as our reporter Colette Davidson finds out when she meets him in his kitchen. We're in uh, Dupin des Idées, uh, old-fashioned bakery in Paris, in the 10th area. It's a bakery from 1875, where we sell only bread and viennoiserie the old-fashioned way. Now, when you say the old-fashioned way, what does that mean? Is there a way of creating the bread, or is it in the ingredients? Taking time, long process. For instance, it's two days to make bread, one day and a half to make croissant, while everywhere else it's about two hours, and using prime ingredients, top quality ingredients. No chemicals, no additives, no preservatives. Only natural things. And where do you get your ingredients? All around, in about 100 kilometers away maximum, except chocolate, and uh, everything else is local, organic, and top quality. How many employees do you have here, actually, and where did you get your name, Dupin et Desidées? I have 11 employees, 10 and a half exactly, plus me, and uh, the name Dupin et Desidées came from the idea of getting the foot in the roots, like a tree, exactly, and everything else was ideas because it's something you get in the future and observing most, most of what is going on in life and gathering ideas. So it was gathering tradition, old-fashioned things, with a different way of working. This is Dupin des Idées. How long have you been in operation? 17 years. Uh, but the, the outside of the bakery looks like it's been here for longer. Is that just for One, show or has it been here since, it looks like it's been here since like the early 1900s? No, no, it's, the bakery is from 1875, so 140 years ago. And can you tell me a bit more about your pain des amis? It's rather well-known, wouldn't you say? Yeah, it's what craft bakery should be. It's a unique bread made with the heart, with passion, so it tastes different from any other bread. It's a very long process. There is two days fermentation and there's one hour baking. Well, usually there is two hours fermentation and 20 minutes baking. So crusty, tasty, and long-lasting, and healthy too. Anybody can eat and digest it, even people with gluten allergy problems. Really? Yes. How does that? Why is that? Because of the l long fermentation on the base of organic wheat. Because the problem with gluten is not gluten, it is the quality of the wheat. Modern wheat is highly allergic and made in two hours, it's still highly allerg allergic. If you start with organic wheat and put on that a process of two days, then time cuts the gluten molecular in so tiny pieces it becomes highly digestible even f for people with gluten allergy. And now I, I saw people waiting for up to 20 minutes downstairs for croissants. Yes. Is that something that you're also known for? Yes, absolutely, because croissant, you have to understand that it's no longer taught in France for 40 years, more than one generation. So about 20 25% of the craft bakers are still making croissant themselves, but 75%, the others, are, not, are no longer doing themselves. They are using industrial croissant. So, and out of the 25% left, we are only a few a scratch to work from top quality materials with a very long process, 36 hours to make a croissant here, and which makes it, it, it bears the name croissant, but the taste is totally different. Ça, pourquoi Parce que quand tu fais dans ce sens-là, tu m'écrases là, les, tu 
m'écrabouille la patte. Alors que si tu fais dans ce sens-là... Everything on details. It's it's uh, famous uh, Mies van der Rohe, the, the famous uh, architect, said that once. Hell is in details. <laughs> See, perfection is in details. Yeah. Perfection is in details. Okay, go. If you don't pay attention to all these details, you made a decent, ordinary product. If you want to make a fantastic product, you have to pay attention to all the details. And you don't let anything go like, yeah, that's okay. No, that's not okay. That must be perfect. So I noticed you were showing your employee that there was a little bit of the croissant that was smushed on the edge when the trays it's, went it's, together. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, the the way he was brushing the, the dough with the egg yolk. There, there's a, uh, a way which protects the dough and there's another one which goes faster but damages the dough. I want the time-consuming one, yes, but the perfect one. And now you yourself, are you making things still or do you leave that to your employees? I Most of the time I leave it to my employees, but I control everything and if there is anything to change to, to, to show, I'm the one who uh, shows and, and makes again. You get to taste right. test things. I have to taste every that's a, day. That's a tough that, job. That's very tough things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you miss uh, working with your hands? I mean, I imagine you started there creating with your hands the, the bread, the pastries. I, I don't miss it because I, I still do it very regularly and I often do it also on the we on weekends, I'm closed on weekends, with my kids to show them how to make a decent uh, bread at home with just your hands, a bowl and some flour. That's it. These are lucky kids. Huh? They're getting good, uh, good croissants every morning. No, 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 no croissant, bread, bread, bread. But croissant from time to time, yes, when the bakery is open, but I, I don't teach them yet how to make croissant. It's the most difficult thing. Really? And, yeah. and, and it looks the easiest? No, 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 it's absolutely not. It's much more difficult than bread. That's why 75 of the craft bakers no longer make croissant themselves. Too difficult. And now, what sort of innovation uh, are we seeing in, in baking in, in France? Are we seeing any new products coming out? Are people trying to perfect old classics? I wouldn't say there is innovation. I'd rather talk on, on the past five years on trend, which is back to the past trend. Some bakers, passionate bakers, are turning back to traditional, old traditional techniques, which are much more time consuming, but the only ones allowing you to make quality things. When I mean quality is taste, long lasting and healthy. And France is really, you know, it's set apart when it comes to baking, at least in our minds. Would you say that's true? Or is there anyone yeah. else in the world that's really doing no. baking or pastries well? No. France, I, I, I've traveled around and I'm, I'm passionate for food for, for decades, is really the country for bread and viennoiserie. I don't know why. Is it because historically we had Marie Antoinette arriving from Austria with croissant and then Parisian bakers starting to make croissant? But look at pâtisserie which is famous worldwide with exceptional taste and techniques. And it's the same for bread. The, France is the country where you have the widest choice of bread and probably the best ones too. Do you ever get sick of it, of eating Never. bread and pastries? Never. <laughs> no way. It's a passion and I, I do it like a passion, so there's no possibility for me to get sick of it. No. A quick break for our rumbling stomachs now. 
Throughout this series, we'll be visiting the workshops of the best and most experienced French ateliers that work with La Maison Chanel. Commissioning the most sought-after craftsmen and women for their haute couture collection gives these small companies more secure futures in an age when artisans are struggling to survive. Last week, we visited Chanel's goldsmith. This week, we're meeting the company who does its millinery. Maison Michel has long been making hats, and we head into their workshop on the outskirts of Paris to find out about the techniques that made them world-renowned. Let's go to the atelier directly because it's uh, where the whole magic happens. <laughs> My name is Priscilla Royer and I'm the artistic director of Maison Michel. So Maison Michel is a house that exists since uh, 1936 and it's been part of the Chanel group since the late 90s where we actually uh, make the hats in collaboration with the studios and we kind of um, make their wish come true <laughs> in terms of hat and millinery. <laughs> the name of the person was uh, Auguste Michel and then uh, he started with uh, some famous technique of the traditional hat making and then soon straw, so uh, we'll see it later at the, at, the, at the workshop. And they were actually working on this very, very particular straw that was called Zan, Z-A-N. It's this very uh, coated straw that, that looks like varnish straw, really. So that, that was the, they were famous for that. We're talking about quality craftsmanship, and here a hat goes from one hand to another depending on the step of where we are, and then sometimes it's one person that does the whole hat on its own. So you've got the oven here where, where the things are actually drying up. And then here it's where you put the steam so that you can stretch the material and actually be more flexible with the felt. So here, for example, you've got the hat. You have, you have the crown here and the brim here. And then it's assembled at the, at the atelier next door. So here they're working on the first shape. And then afterwards we put on the embellishment, whether it's a ribbon or, or whatever, flowers, uh, everything. Here you have the sun straw machine, so it works with this straw, uh, which is like um, a string, and then you stitch in, in round and round until, until you have the whole shape. And then it goes back to the um, sauna and hammam, where, where they actually uh, uh, rework the shape and make it very sharp. That's the famous machine that, was, uh, that made Maison Michel famous. <laughs> Blanche is the expert of the Sunstrom machine. She's been doing it for quite a long time and she's training a, a young girl to, um, to do the same. It's a, it's a couple of, it takes a couple of years, more than a couple of years to get properly trained. It's a whole crazy thing. <laughs> We've got people applying from different, who have different backgrounds. Some of them never heard of a hat making and they're, they're very into it just just by the idea of it and when they discover it they either they, they stay or they don't but we have young people that they have the proper studies for that so we're, we're very close from these schools as well so uh, and then we, we train them the way we work here with the Maison Michel special touch so in the end uh, they, they kind of train especially to work here you've got the old generation making some sort of a very very intense transmission to the young one and and it's um it's very organic and it, it's all done in a very positive attitude because the old, the old ones are very uh, proud to actually transmit what they know and, and really teach them. And the young ones, uh, they feel kind of honored and happy to work with the hand really because it's uh, something that you can't really see everywhere and it's, uh, it's another type of work and it's, uh, it, it's another mindset as well. It's a, it's a different process of 
of working. Now, let's get back to business. The agricultural sector is, of course, vital to the world of food and drink. And each year in Paris, the Salon de l'Agriculture is held, celebrating what France has to offer in farming, from the machinery and tractors to the people making cheese and growing vegetables. And let's not forget the animals. We sent Colette Davidson down to take the temperature of this year's fair. At the Salon de l'Agriculture, France's annual agricultural fair, you can listen to the calls of roosters and ducks, sit in a tractor, and test out fig-flavored sausage. But the cows, in shades of beige, chocolate, tan, or spotted, are undoubtedly the big hit at the fair. Especially Iminence. The white and dark gray spotted cow, representing the north of France, is the star of the Salon de l'Agriculture this year. Eminence is here this year because every year there's a breed of cow that's put on display. We wanted to show off this particular breed, the Blue de Nord, because it doesn't produce very many calves and we wanted to show off its pretty colours. It's also a representation of our region in the north. That's Teddy Flamand, a young farmer from the north of France, who's here with Iminence and his friends. It's a relatively rare breed because it's not very well known. It can only be found in the north, in the Pas de Calais region. This breed was on the verge of dying out, and we want to keep it alive in our region and make sure it doesn't disappear. But the Salon de l'Agriculture hopes to do more than just celebrate livestock. It's a chance to recognize France's farming industry as a whole. While France is the largest agricultural producer within the EU, the livelihood of French farmers is increasingly under threat. Valérie Leroy, the director of the Salon, says the fair has a dual purpose. The Salon de l'Agriculture is both a cultural reference for French people and also a way to create more economic growth. So first, it has cultural importance because French people really love it. Practically every French person came to the Salon with their parents when they were kids. They come a bit less as teenagers, but they come back later with their own kids as a way to introduce them to French farming. And then on the economic side, there's enormous amounts of farmers who take advantage of the salon to sign contracts and create partnerships. For example, distributors will create agreements here with grain producers or farmers. So it holds an important place in terms of business too. Last year's fair saw nearly 700,000 visitors. This year hopes to break that record. Sophie is here with her husband and young son. Now we are looking at the, the, the wonderful cow who is called Eminence, but uh, normally we are going to see donkeys. Donkeys? Yes. Why? We are fan of donkeys. <laughs> Sophie and her family see coming to the fair as a chance to visit Paris, but also a way to get closer to the land they live in. We are meeting a lot of people who are farmers of, of our countries and we are seeing uh, different customs and uh, traditions and for us it's uh, very important to 
to meet people and speak about our different point of view about uh, agriculture. The Salon de l'Agriculture is not just a must-see for the common French person, it's also a who's who in French politics. It's practically a requirement for sitting presidents to visit the fair. And this year, President Emmanuel Macron set a record milling through the seven pavilions for more than 14 hours. Mr. Macron was here in part to reassure farmers that he plans to protect France's agricultural industry in the face of global superpowers like Russia, China and the United States. But he was probably also just as happy to come to the regional food and drink pavilion and try some cheese. Smoke billows out of giant pots, cooking sausage and sauerkraut dishes from the Alsace region, as a stand nearby serves up sandwiches filled with ham from the Basque country. Vendor Yves Jasmine is holding court with a counter full of football-sized wheels of tome cheese from Brittany. He says it's not just a stereotype. The French really do love cheese. Yes, it's, uh, it's a form uh, two, three thousand years of cheese in France. It's, uh, the same for the bread. Every, every French loves the cheese. On English now, American, American, they love the cheese. That's very important. <laughs> it's good for me, for, good for everybody. For Monocle in Paris, I'm Colette Davidson. To end the program each week, we'll hear from various Monocle staff about the French products they love from kitchenware to items of clothing and even children's toys, we'll be navigating French craft from the point of view of the user. This week, Monocle's Vinnie Shireni tells us about the handcrafted Opinel knives she was brought up with. There are several famous French knife brands, including Laguiole and Sabatier, but for me, Opinel is a cut above the rest. It all began with my mum, who would always have one of these trusty flick knives on her when we went on family holidays. With their simple curved wooden handle, Savoy stainless steel blade, and an almost childproof twist lock, they were perfect for jamming into a picnic bag. My brothers and I loved them, and we were always begging to use them. I particularly remember using it to slice into baguettes, dice tomatoes, and cut off chunks of brie the perfect lunch on a windy Brittany beach in August. Eventually we got our own mini ones, yes, seriously, so that we wouldn't get hers sandy. When lunch was over, we were allowed to deploy our opinels for dirtier tasks. I liked carving letters into the wooden groins that marked the limit of how far we could stray from our parents. My brothers preferred to use theirs to dissect crabs and anything else they could find in nearby rock pools. The beach family holidays no longer happen, but the habit of always carrying an opinel has stuck with me. When I moved abroad, my mum gave me my own one with an orange stained handle, and it's been part of my kit ever since. It's been used to prepare taboulet up a mountain in Lebanon, sculpt driftwood on an island in Indonesia, and carve open packing boxes in an empty flat in Athens. Right now, it's sitting in the cutlery drawer of my kitchen, buried among plastic takeaway knives and colourful sporks. It doesn't get pulled out as much as it used to be, but it's always there, sharpened and ready to be thrown into my backpack or hiking bag to embark on another adventure, or perhaps just cut off another chunk of brie on that windy beach in Brittany.
That brings us to the end of this episode of Made in France. Join us next week when we'll be roaming around the country in search of more great artisanship. Be sure to check out our sister programme, Métier Class, where you can hear one of the final interviews with the fashion label's late art director, Karl Lagerfeld, as well as conversation with Chanel's fashion president, Bruno Pavlovsky. You can download the show from monocle.com or from your favourite audio source. This programme was produced by Holly Fisher and Tom Edwards, and our thanks to Fernanda Augusto-Pacheco, Daphne Azar and Sophie Grove. I'm Gillian Tobias. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.